PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. The following PTJ podcast is the 18th Maley Lecture, delivered by Dr. Cornelia Kulig at APTA Conference 2013 on June 28, 2013, in Salt Lake City, Utah. Introducing Dr. Kulig is APTA President Dr. Paul Rocker, Jr. The President of the American Physical Therapy Association, Dr. Paul Rocker. Good morning. I'd like to thank you for joining us for the 18th John H.P. Maley Lecture. The Maley Lectureship was established to honor John Maley, the former president of Chattanooga Corporation, and the close relationship he had between APTA and Chattanooga Corporation over the years. John Maley served as president and chair of the foundation for the Physical Therapy Foundation from 1996 to 1999, and as a board trustee for over nine years. John Maley was a true friend to physical therapy, a generous supporter of the Foundation for Physical Therapy, and a strong advocate for our profession. This morning, I'm very pleased to have the honor of introducing John's son, David. Following in his father's footsteps, David has built a career within the rehabilitation industry. David and his family still live in Chattanooga, where he's currently president of Magister Corporation, a manufacturer and distributor of products for physical therapy that his father started back in 1995. Several of you already know David as he has grown up in the industry and has spent many summers working with his father. Please join me in welcoming David Maley. Thank you, Paul. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 18th annual John Maley Lecture. In 1996, the Maley Lecture was established to honor a member of the American Physical Therapy Association who has made a significant contribution to the profession in the area of clinical practice. I am proud to announce this year's recipient is Dr. Cornelia Kulig. Dr. Kulig is Professor of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy and a co-director of the Musculoskeletal Biomechanics Research Laboratory at the University of Southern California. She is an active and contributing member of the American Physical Therapy Association, the American and International Societies of Biomechanics, and the American College of Sports Medicine. She is also a founding member of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Over the years, Dr. Kula's research has focused on improving, the sci improving scientific and clinical understanding of tissue morphology, biomechanics, neurophysiology, and pathology in relation to degenerative processes in tendons and muscles. She teaches coursework related to anatomy and biomechanics and is a clinical mentor in the orthopedic physical therapy residence program. Today, Cornelia will focus on residency education and its goal of building upon the foundation of one's clinical and professional education. As such, residency education has a tremendous potential either to enhance or suppress the growth of the physical therapy profession. This lecture will reflect on the current and past experiences and identify the existing untapped opportunities 
that need to be strategically addressed by the physical therapy profession in residency, fellowship, and pre-professional clinical education. Cornelia's lecture is entitled, Residency Education in Every Town. Is it just so simple? Please welcome Dr. Cornelia Kulik. Thank you, Mr. Mele, for introducing me. Each year, with this lecture, we honor your father's life, and it is a privilege for me to do so this year. I feel compelled to present the audience with an image of John Hugh Patrick Mele you have shared with me. Your father's life story is inspiring, and I truly wish I had the opportunity of meeting him in person. He carried the message imparted by his upbringing and his liberal arts education into his whole life, a life built on utmost competence, conscience, and compassion. He was a scholar of classics and a businessman who devoted his life's career to building his company, Chattanooga, the world's largest and best-known company that manufactures and supplies rehabilitation equipment. His work was to serve the same patients many of us do, and that means we were serving on the same team. The theme of this annual APTA conference is join the conversation, suggesting an invitation to a discourse and an exchange of ideas on a topic relevant to all of us. One of my mentors wrote in an email earlier this year, communication, exchange of ideas, and a principal discourse are the secret yet essential ingredients that are required to make a good community of learners a great one. The theme of the Mailey Lecture is clinical practice. The best preparation for clinical practice is a mentored immersion in patient care. This mentored immersion is broadly known as residency. What I hope to do with this lecture is to further stimulate a discourse about residencies and physical therapy. Why do we need them? What are they? And how shall we go about creating an optimal residency? In preparation for this lecture, I searched for written literature. And as I have discovered, the written literature on the topic of medical residency is limited, and the literature on residencies and physical therapy is non-existent. Therefore, my preparation for this lecture was that of interviewing many students, residents, residency graduates, in, and residency mentors in physical therapy and in medicine. The highlights of those discussions are woven into this lecture. An internet accessible resource used by many, Wikipedia, describes residency as a stage of graduate medical training. A resident physician or a resident is a person who has received a medical degree and who practices medicine under the supervision of fully licensed physicians, usually in a hospital or a clinic. This definition goes on to state that residencies are also available and may be required for students graduating from pharmacy or physical therapy schools. So, since we are now in Wikipedia, there is no turning back. We are en route to residency, education, and physical therapy. Actually, we are still 
in a stage of extensive and passionate discussions, as evidenced by 2012 Oxford-style debate at the annual APTA conference. Residencies, no residencies. With this lecture, I firmly stand on the side of residencies for physical therapy. So here is why residencies are needed. Physical therapists graduate with a terminal doctoral degree. The expectations are high. They do not have 20 years for their experience to develop. They need it now. For example, 30 years ago, we had an hour with a patient. 10 years ago, we were scheduled every 30 minutes. The new graduates might need to evaluate and treat a complex and internet-informed patient in 20 minutes. And this is only one very practical example of the demands the new graduates are facing. Second, since we profess to educate generalists in the DPT programs, residencies provide the necessary competence to practice in an area of specialized care. And finally, the intangibles. The residency education provides the necessary clinical confidence that comes with knowledge and skill. This graph represents the number of physical therapy graduates per year from 3,500 30 years ago to 5.1 10 years ago, and a projected 8.6,000 in 2015. Are we indeed ready to embrace physical therapy residencies as an expected path of physical therapist training? If we say yes, we need to vigorously yet thoughtfully pursue the development of a suitable infrastructure capable of providing residency training for more than 8,000 therapists per year. Here's a recent map of residencies and fellowships in the United States. They represent nine diverse specialties. And among those, there are cardiopulmonary, clinical electrophysiology, geriatrics, neurology, orthopedics, pediatrics, sports, women's health, and wound care. New areas of spe specialization are being added, and number of residencies is growing annually. There are likely many clinics with elements of postgraduate training that resemble residency. But considering the whole package, Kaiser Permanente in Hayward, California, is credited with the honor of the first physical therapy residency founded in 1979. This pioneering residency continues to flourish under the outstanding leadership of Carol Jo Titchener. By 1991, I can account for at least eight residencies that became a part of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Credentialing of residencies began in the late, late 90s, which coincided with the graduation of the first DPT classes. Now, I account for 134 residencies and 31 developing residencies. So what have we learned from our short history? Then, in the 80s and 90s, we asked, will they come? Are they willing to give up their full-time clinical positions? leave their home and family to pursue residency education far away from home? You have likely noticed on the prior slide the higher clustering of residencies on both coasts. 
Reflecting back on those concerns, I think we did not give our younger colleagues sufficient credit for their desire to grow professionally and to further their independence. Now in 2013, we ask, are there a sufficient number and diversity of residencies to meet the demand? Here's some simple data from a recent update. As I already mentioned, there are a total of nine specialties, and among those, there are currently 58 credentialed and 16 developing residencies in orthopedics. There are 21 credentialed and six developing in neurology, 10 credentialed and, six, ten de and four developing in pediatrics. From my conversation with people around the country, I find that the ratio of applicants to residency acceptance is rapidly increasing to a somewhat of consistent ratio of up to two to three applicants per one acceptance in 2012. Although this is a good problem to have, we need to avoid a potential pitfall of creating new residencies solely for the purpose of to meet the demand. If we race after quantity, our educational efforts might be marginalized and the quality of residency training becomes diluted. We can't say this is not my problem because the quality of graduates of any program impacts the reputation of physical therapists nationally and worldwide. Residencies face the same challenge. Residencies need to uphold high standards far beyond the clinical training provided by DPT education. And finally, residency graduates are expected to make a difference. My call is for thoughtful yet authoritative investment in the development of strong residency programs, as they indeed have the potential to steepen the growth trajectory of our profession. One of the residencies I residents I interviewed, let's call her Ann Jones, said, I went to PT school to get a degree, but I went to a residency to become a physical therapist. So how did that happen? How did she become a physical therapist? Certainly not a trivial task to capture, at least not in the laboratory sense of a controlled experiment. But here are some gross estimates. She spent a year in a rigorous clinical program. She saw 2,600 new and returning patients, 15% with a mentor. She shadowed three surgeons, observed five surgeries, wrote up 75 log hours, defended four life patient exams, read more than 100 articles, submitted a case study to a peer review journal, assisted in teaching two DPT classes, and debated clinical approaches with colleagues and mentors. Missing from this list are the intangibles, the learnable moments. They can be rewarding, but they can also be quite stressful. For example, the many sleepless nights after an apparent clinical error in judgment, or a forceful comment from a concerned patient who blamed the exaggeration of symptoms on your treatment. Or on the other end of the spectrum are the rewards watching your spinal cord injured person, patient walk across the stage during his high school graduation, or this metaphorical path on the back with a referral from a physician stating, you seem to know. <laughs> After all that, she can now confidently say, I think like a clinician, 
She went on to write in her self-assessment, I see the whole picture and act from my personal conviction informed by literature. In the view of her clinical colleagues, physical therapists, physicians, and surgeons, she gets good outcomes, and the patients recommend her to their friends and family. Those are some of the metrics of becoming a physical therapist. Residency training builds on entry-level education, which in less than three decades rapidly advanced from baccalaureate to doctoral-level education. The breadth of the educational content grossly remained the same, yet the depth has been enhanced in many areas, but not in all. How do we decide what the curriculum content of the residency should be? Considering the short three years allocated for PT education, it is logical that we are seriously beginning to talk about levels of educational content. That is, what clinical content ought to be presented in professional DPT program and what can be omitted from the DPT program referred to as advanced. The levels of educational content presented here in an abridged form were recommended or proposed by Dr. Linda Fetters. This framework has a built-in discourse among academic and clinical faculty, and as all curricula would undergo periodic re-evaluations and modification. Thinking of professional education globally, perhaps it would be worthwhile discussing a common core across DPT programs that would then unite the profession, and we would have a firm starting point for residency curricula. Here's a different viewpoint. When I served on the curriculum committee at the Keck School of Medicine at USC, we talked about teaching for exposure versus teaching for competence. It was apparent to me that the faculty of medicine thought of education delivered and acquired during the four years of medical school as teaching and learning to exposure. Exposure doesn't mean to me trivializing the depth. It means to me providing the necessary breadth to understand the complex processes of human physiology so that the current patient management can be understood and future approaches to healing can be developed. Medical schools can teach for exposure because they can confidently rely on residencies to teach for competence. Until residency education will become a norm in physical therapy education, we need competence in foundational skills, prior identified as level one, among the DPT graduates, and competence in advanced skills among residents. So what is competence? As I explored the literature, I learned that competence is a state, and it has the capacity to develop through experience and the capacity of the individual to learn and adapt. Here's a categorization of the level of competence offered by Dreyfus and Dreyfus in 1980. Novice, experienced beginner, practitioner, knowledgeable practitioner, and expert. These categories distinctly delineate between the level of levels of competence, yet in reality, when observing a practitioner over time and case by case, the assessment of her behavior may span two or three levels. So perhaps adding consistently in front of the descriptor will provide for a more stable categorization. But where would the residency graduates be placed in this hierarchical spectrum? 
and how would they self-assess? Practitioner? Knowledgeable practitioner? How does Ann Jones, DPT, become a knowledgeable practitioner within one year of graduation from a DPT program and after completing only one year long residency? Another observation I have made over the years, it what appears to me a thin line between education and training. Or shall we think of training as a form of education? You have certainly heard a surgeon being introduced as Dr. Green trained at USC or Dr. Green trained under Dr. Smith. These are expressions used in the clinical community and are signs of academic status. With that statement come recognition, trust, and authority. But with that statement also raises substantial responsibility, a responsibility to uphold the reputation of the institution and the person. Though accepted in the scientific community as a sign of academic pedigree, training is often frowned upon among academic purists. They profess to educate, to teach how to think. But many large universities in the United States have committed to delivering professional education, medicine, pharmacy, physical therapy, and by doing so, have subscribed to training as a form of education. Residencies, in my opinion, must strongly rely on training as a component of a resident's education. So what does the term training mean to you? Each of you has likely had some experience as a recipient, deliverer, or observer of training. In most cases, we think of some sort of an apprenticeship, learning under the guidance of an established scholar or an experienced practitioner. Here are some examples of training that I have encountered and found interesting and meaningful. The first, fundamental and most obvious, is patient evaluation side by side with a physical therapy mentor or physician or surgeon. Shadowing, co-treating, being judged and judging, senior mentors, physicians and surgeons, provides for an excellent training strategy by benchmarking against senior practitioners or other professions. Another example, keeping a logbook. A simple log of patient presentation, selected interventions, responses to treatment, or mentor suggestions. Remember when your chemistry teacher told you to keep detailed notes of your experiments? He also told you never to pull out a page out of your lab book. And when you asked him why, he said, if you do that, another page may fall out, and you may lose notes describing your earlier experiment. Same with a case logbook. After you see your 61st patient with, clinical, with cervical radiculopathy, and after reviewing the first 60 you have seen, you get few steps closer to the intuitive understanding of the situation attributed to experts. I think residency is a continuous experiment that teaches us how to solve new challenges. And that I would call training through reflection. Here's another example of training, the red badge of courage. This is a story that Dr. Cheryl Resnick shared with me. The red badge of courage was created by physical therapists at Rancho Los Amigos National Rehabilitation Center. It was given by physical therapists to a physical therapist 
who successfully performed assessment of a patient's gait in front of Dr. Jacqueline Perry. Success was defined as surviving the experience and not falling apart in the process. And that I will call training by authority. The rite of passage, such as taking the final patient-based exam in front of your own mentor or an external expert. During the first few years of the orthopedic residency at USC, Dick Earhart served as the external examiner for our residency program. Dick Earhart was an outstanding clinician and an educator. He was in private practice in West Virginia and served as a clinical faculty at the University of Pittsburgh. He was also one of the eight founding members of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists, a group whose main accomplishment was to bring residency education to physical therapy. If you yourself have not had an opportunity to learn from Dr. Earhart, you're likely sitting next to someone who directly or indirectly learned from him. His annual visits to USC involved participation in a residency, final residency exam. We refer to it as the life patient exam. The patient was selected by the resident and the patient case was accompanied by a comprehensive literature-based write-up with the assessment of patient presentation and his responses to recent intervention strategies. The exam would begin by the senior local mentor presenting the resident to the external expert by saying, Dr. Earhart may present to you Ann Jones, USC's orthopedic resident who completed a year-long rigorous patient-based clinical training and so on. That way, not only the resident was assessed, but also the residency environment and the residency mentors were judged and received feedback. At the time of the exam, the examination process might have been intended to signify knighting, but it might also have been unintentionally perceived as illustrated by the second cartoon. (laughs) So this brings me to the question, What are the ingredients of an optimal residency program? The ingredients that are necessary to make this optimal stew are patients, mentors, teaching philosophy, educational mission, the curriculum, an optimal environment, and residents. The first ingredient, patients, sufficient in volume, patients, an optimal interaction with the therapist. A postgraduate educational opportunity without a significant number of meaningful patient interactions is not a residency. Phone, Skype, Adobe Connect, any other internet media cannot substitute for direct patient contact. The second ingredient are mentors sufficient in numbers, mentors, sufficient in diversity, and mentors who have an optimal interaction with the residents. Where do these mentors come from? What should their credentials be? Do many of you have had the opportunity to learn from Carol Jo Titchener and Gail Jensen about mentoring? We need to expand the current efforts to train more residency mentors. This is a plea to the APTA Board of Directors for future support of this important initiative.
The third ingredient is teaching philosophy. Teaching philosophy well stated and lived by. A teaching philosophy is a self-reflective statement of your beliefs about teaching and learning. Health, honesty, and dignity is Midori Goro's teaching philosophy. Who is Midori? She is the Yasha Heifetz Chair of Violin at the USC Stoughton School of Music. As a performer and music educator, she is a clinician and a mentor to her students. Midori would say, health, honesty, and dignity are the pillars of ethics by which my students are encouraged to pursue their studies. To try to achieve the first two, health and honesty, is quite a challenge. And the third is to accept the issues at stake with dignity. Certainly an appealing philosophy for residency. Residents and their mentors need to take care of their own physical and emotional health to serve their patients with physical and emotional needs. Residents and their mentors need to be honest with themselves and their patients. And residents and mentors need to deal with potential clinical conflicts with dignity. The fourth ingredient is the educational mission. A statement suitable for a particular residency, the administrative unit, and the institution in which the residency is housed. Formulating the mission of the residency would precede the development of the curriculum, and it would also be revisited every few years. Much can be said about the curriculum for residencies in physical therapy. A residency curriculum provides for diversity of patients, depth of clinical and basic science literature, clinical expertise of mentors. An obvious benchmark for residency curricula is a reference to the entry-level curriculum. The distinct difference between the curriculum in a professional program and that of a residency is the daily interaction with patients. The unique presentations, comorbidities, social and cultural preferences. The patient's presentation shapes the interaction between the patient, the resident, and the mentor. This is not a paper case anymore. We may astutely observe that a person could be in a similar situation twice, first as a third-year DPT student and later as a resident. Same clinic, same mentor, similar patient presentation. Is the only difference a two-month span between the two situations? The difference is also in the expectations. Both the resident's self-perception expectation of herself as a licensed DPT and a resident and the mentor's expectations of her. Unquestionably, as I already stated, the most meaningful residency experience happens with the patient present. There are, however, other forms of clinically motivated learning opportunities that are part of residency. They are, for example, practice-driven discussions of literature. Discussion of literature does not mean reporting on literature, but rather careful and focused questioning of each step of the study's motivation, design, and protocol, as well as the interpretation of the results. One of the residency mentors shared with me that, in her observation, the residents are the best translators of evidence into practice. 
they are truly equipped so they understand the underlying science and they are flexible in the interpretation of the literature. An important aspect of residency education is to enhance the resident's depth of understanding of the underlying pathology and the proposed mechanism behind the intervention. The mechanisms-related literature is being produced, produced at a rapid rate and requires continuous return to learning of new basics and revisiting the old. Randomized clinical trials are an excellent way to assess a cohort's response to an intervention, and they shall continue to inform our practice. However, what this type of literature is not providing is the biology behind the intervention. A close-to-home example is the application of eccentric exercise for lower-extremity tendinopathies. Progressive eccentric exercise works. One after another clinical trial confirms satisfactory immediate outcomes of the simple one-exercise program. The participants return to presymptomatic activity. Yet we continue to explore the mechanism behind the apparent efficacy of this controlled deceleration. Is it the amount of load provided, decreased or different muscle activation pattern accompanying this exercise, or does the ground reaction force frequency content has something to do with this efficacy of this exercise? So where, are, where is the best place to have these in-depth, motivated discussions? I believe it's in universities. Having said that, it is important for me to note that residencies in physical therapy have been historically a grassroots phenomenon. For a long time, yes, with some exceptions, like Kaiser Program in Orthopedics, and the university-affiliated program in pediatrics. Residencies in physical therapy have been offered by passionate, caring, and energetic therapists in small outpatient clinics. The intensity and the desire to learn and to push the physical therapy practice forward were palpable in those small clinical communities. The resources were the patients and the therapists. Their creative minds and their commitment and willingness to go much more than the extra mile. Those efforts shall continue. Looking onward, for residencies to grow at the desired rate, it is time to look for an optimal, not just a suitable environment in which the residencies are housed. An environment that includes clinicians, clinical scholars, researchers. The optimal environment is the sixth ingredient in this quality residency program. I believe that university-based educational programs provide for the optimal residency environment. Here's one of several possible arguments to support my statement. Lately, much attention has been given to translational research. This concept originated in the laboratory community. It reflects the desire to communicate and apply what was discovered and apparently far removed from the patient's symptoms laboratory. As this process matures, and we are getting better in translating clinical observations back into laboratory, 
and refining the utility of this laboratory research. This concept of translation can also be applied to teaching of clinical skills. In my opinion, academic faculty, who are also residency mentors, are in an excellent position to translate not only the realities of clinical practice into the classroom, but also being able to observe a novice clinician in the clinic. That timely insight is very valuable and allows the clinical classroom faculty to continuously adapt and refine their teaching strategies for the current students. For example, a resident begins the exam with observation of barefoot walking in a 65-year-old man with lateral hip pain. Great. But the resident omits to ask the person to walk with toes in and misses a pain-free limitation of functional internal rotation on the involved side. That simple observation would have enabled a hypothesis-driven examination. And instead, the resident performed many textbook correct tests that resulted in an indecisive and blurry clinical picture. An academically-based residency mentor would not only guide the resident, but will also bring this observation into the classroom to his entry-level students. This cross-pollination of clinical training among learners of different levels in the clinic and the academic environment is the best recipe for an effective and efficient education and quality patient care. Many physical therapy educational programs already offer residency education in one or more special specialization specialty areas. When all PT programs add at least one new residency, we will add more than 200 residency sites. This beautiful picture aims to illustrate the center of the universe, artist residential. Although at the time of their training, the residents may not think so, they are the central part of the residency education. A resident needs to be well matched with the mission of a particular residency. This important responsibility falls upon the resident and the faculty men, and the residency faculty. It is all about the match. This is akin to matching a PhD student with her mentor. It has been my observation that the residency applicants are the best and the brightest among our physical therapy graduates. Those who have the burning desire and energy to continue with their training. I find the recent residency applicants as a cohort more homogeneous in their educational foundation than those who applied to residency 15 years ago. Actually, in the past, many residencies required one to two years of clinical experience prior to entry. An educationally homogeneous group is perhaps easier to train. We certainly know a lot more about our residency applicants, but we know much less who they become after graduation. It would behoove us to begin tracking where the graduates are and what they are doing at the moment. Not just residency by residency, but nationally. Perhaps the orthopedic section's initiative to collect clinical data could tease out the residency background of the participating section members. Could we answer the question, do residency graduates have better outcomes?
What I have learned is that many of the residency graduates are doing really well. Those who work in outpatient clinics seem to outperform other early career non-residency colleagues. Others own clinical practices, direct hospital rehabilitation departments, hold faculty position, rehabilitate collegiate and professional athletes, or work for ESPN. The question remains, are residencies making a difference? Or are they merely an extension of the DPT education? I believe that residency education is making a difference. And the difference stems from thinking on your feet, getting feedback, feedback, very good expert feedback, and staying within a good residency too long enough. How do we, as a professional community, continue to support the development of new and retention and growth of existing residents? Our national organization is on board. It provides an infrastructure for residency peer assessment and credentialing. The sections provide guidance and templates for some residency-relevant documentation. There's much grassroots interest in providing the clinical sites for residency education. And the academic community now seems to value providing residencies as one of their programs. So let's bring the spirit of the academic town and gown to fruition and join efforts clinical practices, and university educational program. Much work awaits us. We need to assure continued growth among and within residency programs. Standardization of the content, of the educational content in residencies and the DPT programs is one of these crucial tasks. Here's another idea to think about on your way home. For years, we have been supporting physical therapists in pursuing additional science-based education and PhD programs. Perhaps it is time to support residency education and develop a pods-like scholarship for a resident. As we strengthen the existing residencies, we may concurrently invest in the beginning to train the scientific skills of a resident who may in the future become an independent clinical scholar. Many accomplished allopathic physician scholars lead large research programs and clinical trials without apologizing for not being dual credentialed as MD-PhD. Why can't a DPT do the same? In closing, residency education is a necessary step to clinical mastery. Clinical mastery does not happen through self-study, academic coursework, or by reading books. Most of us need mentorship and guidance to navigate through the maze of patient care. Yes, this will take some effort, maybe much more than some effort, but worthwhile working towards, isn't it? I dedicate this lecture to those whose lives have been changed by the struggle and joy of learning. To residents and residency mentors from the smallest one resident at a time places that have been training residents for years to the newer and ambitious residencies and all those in between. Let's share 
and grow while continuously improving quality. Thank you for being here this morning.